I would like to start off with saying thank you for being on The Global Current, and I'm happy to introduce Dr. Huang as a fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations and a professor on global health at Seton Hall. He is the author of Governing Health in Contemporary China and Toxic Politics. So thank you for being on the show today. Well, thanks for having me, Sydney. Of course. So tell me about your work and your specialization in global health. Well, when we are talking about what I'm currently doing, I'm basically、um, looking at China's、uh, health diplomacy during the、uh, COVID-19 pandemic. We just had a special report launched titled "The COVID-19 Pandemic in China's Global Health Leadership," that was、uh, released last week. I also had. Thinking of writing a book, you know, based on the report, though you know, I have、uh, no idea what exactly I、uh, I need to、um, finish that book. <laughs> okay, so this is、uh, going to be a、uh, uh, many years project. You know, definitely, definitely should take a while. So, with your work in China. Um, what really started your interest in global health and things of that sort? Well, you know that 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 is a good question because last week when I was on a podcast <laughs> with a a、um, a, a, pers- a China hand, you know, she asked the same question, and、uh, well, you know that I was. Trained as a political scientist to be accurate, a, a China scholar, you know, at U、uh, of C.、Um, but my dissertation focused on China's health politics, so you know that noted my interest on studying my health as a governance issue. So when I graduated from the graduate school, I、um, this is a this was the only. 2000s, you know, 20 years ago, when you know that、uh, global health, you know, suddenly become、uh, like、uh, a more prominent field because not just、uh, like、uh, extension of public health, but you saw political scientists, you know, economists, you know, started to examine health issues like from like、uh, governance. Uh, development perspective, you know. So, you know, this sort of noted my interest because, after all, I was trained as a political scientist, was the international relations, you know, scholar and comparativist. So, why can I, you know, study health issues from a foreign policy and national security perspective? You know, so, you know, there were like at that time, you know, really it was this very small community, like、uh, no more than like a dozen scholars who、uh, were interested in this uh, uh, field. So it's pretty much like everybody knows everybody community,、uh, but、uh, you know that uh, uh, it. <laughs> Soon, right? That's the、uh, you you, you、uh, attract attention more people, right? To study this、uh, the field, and certainly, right? Those public health events help, right? It's 2003. There was this the SARS epidemic in China. You know that is actually how I believe I was recruited to Seton Hall as a global health. Personality.、Um, so, and then you have HIV/AIDS, and now, now of course, by COVID-19, right?、Uh, everybody now is become interested in the global health issues, right? 
Yeah, of course. Everyone has become very interested in global health issues because of COVID-19. So to dive deeper into your dissertation topic and into your the topic of one of your books, can you give me a primer on how China's healthcare system is set up? Like, is it comparable to the United States or is it more of a universal healthcare system? I would say it's neither, right? The, 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 it's uh, certainly not the, like a market-based system, you know, that similar to the United States. Because you know, like if you look at the Chinese hospitals, right, still I think more than eighty, you know, maybe ninety percent of the services still provided by public hospitals, right? Which is very different from the United States. You know? But it's you cannot say it's like a state-dominated system either. You know, unlike the British, right, the single payer system, right, the uh, uh, where you have the the government, the central state, right, the control the, the the health insurance scheme. Well, in China, actually, it's a very decentralized system, right? That they have uh, in terms of health insurance schemes, they have you know the or the um, uh, employee uh, based health insurance system. They have the urban residence-based system. They also have a system for rural people. But the, even like in the, within the system for rural people, this is also very decentralized and fragmented because uh, usually like a, a county or a city where they have their own, right, the, the uh, health insurance scheme, you know, that cover, right, the, the needs of the people, residents in the uh, city or county. You know, so you have, we here we basically talk about the several thousand, right, health insurance schemes in the country. And then if you look at the hospitals, right, I say right, more than 80 or 90% of services are provided by public hospitals. But if you look at the number of hospitals, more than half actually are owned by private people, privately owned. Uh, so it's a very complicated, you know, decentralized and fragmented system. Definitely. So this fragmented system so currently, do you think China's top priority should be fixing this healthcare system? Or if not, what top priority do you think China should have in the healthcare realm? Well, you know, that is exactly what, why these problems of access, you know, affordability, because it's just a healthcare service way too expensive, right? And it's difficult, to, you know, for, you know, the uh, rural people to access the urban health centers. You know, that actually uh, led the, uh, the, the government to launch the healthcare reform in 2009. That was more than 10 years ago. They want to fix the healthcare system to make it more affordable more accessible, you know, more uh, equitable, right? Uh, but, uh, you know, they, uh, more than 10 years of healthcare and reform, despite, you know, the, the investment of, you know, billions of dollars, right? The, the, so far, it has not, still not fundamentally solved the problem of access and affordability. You know, this is still, you know, a very unequal system. You know, the uh, gap between the rural and the urban areas and the gap between the wealthy people and the poor people, right? This remain very large, right? The, uh, even though the state become more committed, right, to, uh, supporting, right, the, the uh, marginalized, you know, disadvantaged people, 
right? Uh, in a way, the COVID-19 pandemic is sort of didn't uh, help, right? That this the uh, the healthcare reform in that it. Uh, reinforced the commanding height of the state hospitals, right? When you saw, right, in the media, how, you know, this government hospitals, you know, the employees play such an important role in fighting the pandemic. It justified, right, that this more investment to this large state or public hospitals. For sure. So because of what you've just said, do you think that the COVID-19 pandemic Will in the future spur a healthcare growth in China? Do you think that will refocus onto healthcare? The policies will, or do you think this will not help the Chinese healthcare system and will more so do what you have just stated as keep it in the COVID era of more of a segregation, if you will, of rich and poor in healthcare? Well, you know, the thing is that this demand right, for better and more equitable health care remains there, right? After all, this is a 1.4 billion people, right? And also the leaders themselves are very committed, right, to provide, you know, better and equitable, equitable health care, right? The couple of years ago, they launched this China 2030, you know, uh, this this blueprint and the uh, basically they want to improve the people's public health standards to the level of the developer countries like average expectancy for example they want to you know reach the level on the par on par with the United States you know so this is a very ambitious plan you know, being launched and you know, the thing is that you know the there's some fundamental uh, issues you know you need to address you know that uh, involve, <laughs> well, certainly corruption is the problem in the Chinese healthcare sector. You have, you know, for example, you know, the public health hospitals by right, receiving kickbacks, you know, from pharmaceutical firms, you know, to sell right the the, the medicines that are just way too expensive, right? They all uh, right the strong incentive to you know the uh, ask for you know checkups that are really not that necessary. Sorry, right? And then there's also the problem of uh, you know the uh, male distribution of the healthcare resources because now you have like 80% of the healthcare resources basically concentrated in the cities, right? Uh, and uh, 80% of those in the, in the cities, 80% of those you know the resources probably also concentrated in the major urban uh, health centers, you know, and uh, for those, you know, the, the, the doctors, healthcare workers, you know, walking in those grassroots, rural right, hospitals, really they don't have strong incentives to stay because they're poorly paid, demand is not very high because people prefer to go to the open health centers that ironically actually is facilitated by the improvement of the transportation system in China, right? So, you know, the, despite the progress being made, I think a lot has to be done uh, in the future. Definitely. So with a lot needing to be done in the future, do you think that a lot should be done to push healthcare out into the rural communities? Or do you think that people should just be given a better access to go to cities for their healthcare? 
Well, that is a great question, right? Because you know, especially with this process of urbanization, it becomes less justifiable, right? To just like what Chairman Mao did、uh, in nineteen sixty-five. You know, basically he ordered. You know, we need、uh, you know to put more resources to the countryside. You know, basically he sent the urban doctors、uh, to to serve in the countryside. But now this becomes less justifiable when you have you know more than fifty percent of the population living in the cities, right? And also not to mention you have three hundred million、right, the so-called migrant、uh, workers, the farmers working in the cities, right? So you know the、uh, the, the effect demand is still by、right, The, the、uh, pretty much exist in the cities, you know, that actually justify the government to invest more, right, in the urban areas, right,、uh, and in the urban health centers, you know. So you can see, see that's why you're seeing this gigantic, right, healthcare centers, right, that, that with like hospital, you know, one I think、um, healthcare、uh, a hospital that claims, you know, like hospital beds, you know, like several thousand hospital beds. In the city, right? That's you know sort of very hard to imagine in a country like the United States, you know. But、uh, you know this the, the, this is the problem, right? That you have the effect of demand, right? In the cities, you know that、uh, you know、uh, make it less likely, you might,、uh, for resources to go to the、uh, to be、uh, earmarked to the rural areas. You know, I, I think you know that is the, the 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 challenge. Maybe China could learn from the Japanese experience, right? Because they face the same you know challenge, right? Of urbanization now in the rural areas. You know, fewer people, right? Most of them probably uh like uh, the elderly people. You know, so you know that is the similar challenge I think China is now facing. For sure. So with these challenges that China is facing. Let's dive into COVID and the strict lockdown policies, and specifically how they affected urban communities and rural communities. Since we've been discussing that so heavily, so how do you think that strict lockdown policies have affected the rural communities and the urban communities, and where do you think those differences lie, especially with the healthcare imbalance? Well, if you look at these lockdown measures, you know, pretty much they imposed by to the cities, right? Well, in the rural areas, in part because by、right, these systems remain sort of healthcare system remain very rudimentary, you know, so there are not that many tests, right? So, and also by、right, the the population not that not that dense, you know, so you know maybe uh it's the the, the COVID uh, the uh, infection rate is low there. Uh, so, but the the concern here is that you know with this arrival of the highly transmissible Omicron variant, right,、uh, it's more likely going to overwhelm the rudimentary healthcare system, right, when it's like the entire country. Is inundated with the、uh, COVID cases, right? So, you know that is the the main concern, right, in China, and explain why you know they are you know still resistant, right, to open their borders. Definitely. So, with how China is resistant to opening their borders, would you go into how China's healthcare policies, and specifically the COVID lockdown and the COVID policies that they've enacted? Have been different or similar to other global healthcare policies that have been enacted due to COVID. Well, you know, the, China pursues is what we call zero COVID strategy. Basically, by、right, even one single、uh, local 
transmitted case is going to trigger mass testing, aggressive contact tracing, quarantine, and even lockdown by sealing of neighborhoods, right? The uh, in order to reset the cases to zero, right? The well, that zero COVID strategy, but China certainly was not the, the only country but pursuing that strategy. You know, we know that other countries like Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, right, that did the same thing. But with when those countries move away from this approach, China arguably became, you know, the last zero COVID holdout, right? So that makes sort of China uh, unique. You know, I think so far they still seems to be handling that well, right? Even with the arrival of you know, thousands of athletes, supporting staff, right, in Beijing, this. You know, the, the, uh, inside the, the, the uh, Olympics bubble, it seems about well, there are infections, but uh, there seems to be no spread, right? And outside the bubble, you know, we are seeing by like, the increasing uh, local transmitted cases, but the number remained very small. Definitely. So as we've turned our subject more to the Olympics and we've looked at that, let's look at the more global impact of China and of COVID in general. So do you think that we can prevent COVID from happening again, or is epidemic disease something that is natural, a part of, naturally a part of human existence? Well, you mean for China, we can, can they prevent uh, COVID outbreaks? But, but that is the, you know, the, 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 a good question, right? That you might have seen this, this opinion piece uh, on New York Times, the two leading epidemiologists basically predicting there's no way why China can Right, the, the uh, prevent by the, the spread of Omicron cases, you know. But, but, uh, you know, I think that possibility, well, the risk is certainly high, but that doesn't necessarily mean, why right, this is the only, this worst case scenario is the only scenario China will be facing. You know, it's likely they, they, they certainly cannot prevent those, you know, flare ups, right, across the country. But they might be able to confine them, you know, to rural areas or several major cities, you know, then uh, applying those draconian lockdown measures, right, that they contain the spread of the virus, just like what they did uh, uh, in Wuhan two years ago. So, but, uh, you know, the, the problem is that there's that the zero COVID strategy have problem of sustaining because of these, you know, huge social economic cost, right? So even though, right, that you may be still able to stamp out, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the this, this sporadic outbreaks, right, or even, you know, are, contain the spray, uh, of outbreak beyond, you know, a city, you know, several cities, uh, beyond, you know, like uh, the, the, the cities, it's still, I think, uh, you know, sooner or later, you're going to see the cost exceeding the benefit. You know? uh, so, you know, that is the time, you know, that the China, I think, you know, may find they have no choice but to give up the strategy. Definitely. So with China's no COVID practices that they're currently going under, do you think that in human history or in the future, we will ever reach a level of medical sophistication where we will not have to deal with epidemic disease or will epidemic disease always be a part of our history and our future? 
Well, <laughs> that reminds me, right? The think about forty years ago, right? When you know human beings, right, eradicated smallpox. You know that there was this. Euphoria, right? <laughs> that people were saying, "Wow, you know that this should prove that right? human beings had the tools, right, that uh, in hand, by right? to uh, eradicate, you know, the viruses, you know, the germs, you know, so infectious disease will be the chapter behind us, right? So, but very soon that euphoria, uh, that that kind of optimism was giving way uh, to pessimism when HIV." You know that uh, AIDS, you know, started to be uh, first, well, first identified by in California, right? The uh, in the early 1980s, you know, they, you know, quickly was de- de- developed into a global pandemic, right? That, that so far has, uh, well, even today, you still have like uh, 37 million uh, people living with HIV, right? Uh, the uh, So it, 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 I think uh, with the, well, this is the same problem for COVID-19, right? Uh, you know, with the, it is interesting, right? That with the advancement of the biotech, you know, in public health, right, interventions, right, uh, you know, some of those, you know, essentially there's those, our toolbox has not been fundamentally updated, right? It's the, if you look at the, some of the most effective, you know, interventions like uh, lockdowns, that could be traced to more than 600 years ago, right? During the bubonic plague, right? This quarantine, right? The, the isolation measures, you know, so the, the tools in our toolbox remain, uh, uh, fundamentally the same, you know, even though certainly we have the vaccines, but, uh, you know, look at the vaccines, but with the Omicron, uh, they still cannot effect, uh, uh, prevent, uh, you know, infections, right? 100%, right? So with the toolbox you've mentioned that we've been using of isolation, things like masks and that, of that sort, do you think in the future, post-COVID, we will be better prepared for another epidemic disease or another disease to come about? Or do you think we will let our toolbox go rusty again? Well, you know, these people now are talking about, certainly we're still in this pandemic, but we're already talking about how to prepare for the next one, right? This pandemic preparedness and planning is a very important part of the discussion on, on the uh, whether we need a pandemic treaty, right? In Geneva, we're talking about, well, either we'll revise international health regulations or have a pandemic treaty, right? That is the focusing on how to uh, prevent and prepare for the next pandemic. You know, the, the, the it is important, right, to have have the toolbox right updated right do you have you know we already we're talking about having a like, universal vaccine right that uh, the US army is developing one that can right uh, hopefully be effective against all the coronavirus right variants we might have a universal vaccine that can be effective against all these the, the, the viruses or germ whatever but uh, you know this many of those Pandemics, epidemics happened, right? Because right, a country where this virus was first identified 
did not have you know the uh, uh, the ability or, or the the search capacity right to, to uh, nip the crisis in the bud right they are either because of cover up or because of lack of action right uh, and the uh, lack of information sharing right that uh, uh so when they find right, that that uh, this this is the problem right it's the 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 virus already has been is being uh, found everywhere right so it, it, you know the, the 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 it is very important right to help right the uh, member states of the WHO the World Health Organization I mean right to uh, improve their, uh, you know, serve their core surveillance and response capacity. The, this is where what is required by the international health regulations, right? Most of the WHO member states, you know, are signatory nations, you know, when it was revised in 2005, but, uh, you know, few, you know, even by like, uh, uh 2019, by the, the, the uh, when they, um, COVID-19 hit, right, the steel. Most of the nations do not have that capacity. And even for those wealthy nations, including the United States, right, we thought we had that capacity, but it was clear what well, that is this, this, uh, we pay for our complacence, right? Uh, this is precisely the United States and we, Western countries that are standard bearer, bearers of public health, right, for public health, right, they happen to be hit them the hardest, you know, by uh, the COVID-19, right? So when you talk about the search capacity building, surveillance response capacity building, it's not just about, you know, those poor my nations, you know, less least developed countries, you know, wealthy nations too, right, are obliged to do so. Uh, but, uh, you know, that uh, you cannot just uh, rely on, Right, efforts at the state level or national level, right? This is, after all, a collective action problem, right? So the, 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 it is also important, right, for countries, right, to develop those incentives, you know, when you know, there's the outbreak, they are able to share that inf- information with the international entity like WHO in a timely and, and accurate manner. Right. And that involves reform of the WHO's relationship with the member states so that WHO has more authority, right, and power in dealing with member states. Definitely. And what do you think this power should look like? Do you have an idea of this? Well, for example, why currently, why that's because WHO as a member state organization, well, essentially they have to defer to member states, like in declaring right, the public health emergency of international concern, ensuring right the, the disease-related information, right, uh, because it doesn't have independent right the surveillance, uh, independent uh, intelligence gathering capacity, right. Uh, when, well, for example, there's the, the suspected there's an outbreak in the member state, it uh, cannot. They just send the teams there without permission of that country, right? Uh, so I think what well, what that is left is essentially what we call the shaming and naming power of WHO, right? Could just say 
We want to go there, but that country doesn't allow to. But this is all the power it has, right? And in fact, in order to seek the full cooperation of that country, right, the WHO, right, the, you know, actually has to defer uh, to those member states, right, in uh, information sharing, in uh, um, pandemic uh, response, for example. So I think with the future, right, this is when we talk about restructure that relationship, we should allow, you know, the WHO, for example, to have that ability, right, to develop the independent intelligence gathering capacity. They should be able to send teams to countries, you know, uh, in questioning, right, to uh, do the investigation, you know, to advise, you know, what measures should be undertaken. And uh, also, they should have more teeth by international health regulations, you know, so that you know countries have incentives to comply with the international norms. Definitely. And finally, as this is a student podcast, if a student is listening and say wants to go into reforming the WHO and its power and adding more teeth into it, what would you give your advice to be? for someone who wanted to enter the field of global health? Well, I think now with the, the COVID-19 pandemic, right, this, this no longer, right, this, this global health is no longer, you know, like a low politics issue, right? So it became an issue, right, that not just the public health, you know, but uh, have significant implications for foreign policy and international relations, you know. So, you know, I think in the future, the demand for professionals, you know, that uh, have expertise in, you know, uh, not just the public health, but also, right, the, the international relations, right, uh, will also increase, especially if you have this combined by expertise of both public health and international relations, you know, that will be, I think, uh, ideal, right? So when we talk about the reform in the WHO, right, I think, uh, you know, the, as the you know, norm-making, right, uh, international entity, Right. You uh, certainly cannot just rely on you know, public health professionals or doctors, right? As a leading Larry Gosting, a leading global health scholar, pointed out, you know, WHO needs social scientists, political scientists, international relations scholars, right? The diplomats, lawyers, anthropologists, economists, right? They should all get involved, right? In uh, tackling global health issues, you know. So I think, uh, you know, it's the, uh, if there's anything positive, you know, uh, that from the, the COVID-19 pandemic, it's that uh, it highlighted the importance of tackling global health issues from a multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary perspective. Definitely. Tackling global health has now prevailed to be a very important issue that we're delving into. I'd just like to thank Dr. Huang again for appearing on the Global Current podcast. And if anyone is interested into diving further into these topics, I would refer them back to Dr. Huang's books, Governing Health in Contemporary China and Toxic Politics. Thank you. Thank you, Sydney.